Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the first brand you remember? Oh my gosh. You know what? This sounds crazy, but I have to say McDonald's. As a child, I remember it was, we didn't eat at McDonald's very often, but I just remember the advertising sort of, it would probably be that and Coke, the famous uh, Coca-Cola ad on the mountaintop, you know, early 70s. I remember that. I mean, I was probably five, six years old, and I remember watching that on our TV. So um, uh, clearly I was obsessed with food since I'm saying Coke and, and McDonald's. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today on the podcast, we have Lillian Tomovich, who's the Chief Experience Officer and Chief Marketing Officer of MGM Resorts, which is a $12 billion entertainment company, not a hotel and casino company, an entertainment company. She'll tell you about that. And there's also 83,000 people in that organization. Lillian is, she's a passionate, energetic, sincere person who really, really, really does live her brand purpose every day. And I think after listening to her, you will want to work in her organization. Enjoy this conversation with Lillian Tomovich. Welcome to the CMO Podcast. Great to be here. And Lillian, I first met you in October 2017. And I was, I was at the ANA meeting, you know, the Association of National Advertisers, the biggest trade association in the States. And this is their big annual meeting where they pull in the masters of marketing and, and people give best practice presentations. And I was in the audience when you made your presentation four or five days after the shooting in Las Vegas at one of your properties. And I just want you, and I was so amazed. A, you explained why you came just a few days after that tragedy. And it was, I still remember it vividly. It was one of the most remarkable, purposeful, meaningful presentations I've ever been in the room to listen to, to be moved by. So could you tell our audience a little bit about why you did that? Give some background what you hope to achieve, because it would have been easier to stay at home. You know, it's funny just hearing you talk about it, Jim. I, I started getting sweaty palms again. It just, it, it brings back uh, some just, you know, terrible memories, frankly, for, for me and for so many families in, in, in uh, Las Vegas. The reality is the Sunday before the ANA um, conference, we had the uh, largest uh, mass shooting in the history of the U.S. at Mandalay Bay, one of our flagship properties where 59 individuals unfortunately perished. And it was a real testament of 
of crisis for um, the families, for the community, for our company, for our employees. It was something I, I hope none of us ever have to experience again. And to be completely candid, most of the days leading up to the ANA conference, I don't really remember well because we were not sleeping and just working 24-7 to attend to the families and to our employees and make sure everybody was okay. And I remember sort of Tuesday or Wednesday, I kind of realized I had the ANA conference on Friday and I had our public relations um, crisis team. We were sitting in the boardroom working through things and I said, you know what, I'm supposed to speak at this really big marketing conference on Friday and I'm sort of torn what to do. I said, I don't want to leave my team. I don't want to get on a, a plane. Um, I, you know, I feel like I'm abandoning everyone here. I said, but part of me really feels a need to go in to say that, um, you know, we're going to come together. Life will move forward. The strength of the community is going to bring us through this. And it's important to continue and bring some normalcy back to our lives and to go really represent Las Vegas um, uh, at a time of, of crisis. And so we talked about it and the uh, PR firm and our PR team said, you know what, you should, you should absolutely go. And uh, I remember flying over on the plane to Orlando and it was the first time in days I had a chance to even think about my presentation. And I said, you know, what am I gonna say? And I said, you know, I'm really gonna talk about the fact that I'm doing this for the community. I'm doing this for the people of Las Vegas to show them that we, we are going to come together under a crisis, which we did. The community really supported one another, came together. Um, the support we had was just astonishing. And I just felt it was important to say, you know, we're going to be okay. And so that was, uh, that was sort of the impetus of getting myself uh, to the NA. And it was very cathartic, actually. It was a very healing process for me to be able to kind of step away from what was going back here and just tell our story. Well, what I remember about that story, beyond your courage to come and share it uh, on behalf of your people and the people of Las Vegas, was you talked about sort of... Uh, Finding your place in the world as a company and as as a set of brands, you talked about your company's purpose, and you went way beyond a slogan or a tagline or a beautiful video, but you went to what this meant to your 77,000 employees. And you also talked about how things change in recruiting and measurement and, and performance reviews. It was one of the best stories I've ever heard on a brand purpose coming to life, being activated. Could you share a bit of the status of that today and what you have learned about bringing a purpose to life on a really interesting brand like yours? I think it would be enormously helpful for our audience. Sure. Well, um, so as just a, a bit of background um, for those who may be not as familiar with the story, uh, when I joined the company, we were really a, we had grown out of acquisition. And so we have uh, 27 resorts around the world that we operate, but each one sort of operated like their own little, I'll call them fiefdoms, because they're large, you know, billion dollar businesses in and of themselves. And we realized that the individual brands like Mandalay Bay or Bellagio or Aria have very strong uh, brand recognition and brand equity, but nobody sort of knew who MGM Resorts was. Nobody understood that there was a parent brand uh, that you know owned all of these properties and a loyalty program to support them. And so we started the work to really understand how are we going to position ourselves as MGM Resorts? 
what's in our DNA, what do we want to stand for in the hearts and minds of consumers, and what, what purpose do we play in, in, in consumers' lives? And so we really transitioned ourselves from a traditional casino and hotel company to really an entertainment company because we had been talking about ourselves as a casino and hotel company. And that's not really who we, who we are and our purpose in consumers' lives. And so as part of that, we built this you know, campaign, which was you know, the, the tagline, if you will, was this idea of welcome to the show, which still exists today. But we wanted to make sure, or at least I wanted to make sure that this wasn't just going to be a hollow brand campaign where we had a sexy TV ad, we did some interesting stuff on digital, we wanted to make sure that all at the time, and now we actually have more, but at the time that all 77,000 employees really understood their role in delivering the brand promise. So whether you're working at front desk, whether you're working in a nightclub, whether you're you know, at a casino blackjack table or a restaurant, that you really understood what your role was to deliver wow moments. So we rallied behind this notion brand promise that MGM Resorts exists to entertain the human race. You know, so many of the leaders I meet struggle with the activation of purpose and the measurement. You've been able to do that. So what can we learn from you? What were the conditions that made that work in your culture? What would be your advice to other companies and other categories to follow your lead in terms of all in, activating this, making it meaningful for people, seeing the business results, which you have seen? So what conditions have to be true for this to happen the way it has here? It's a great question. I think one is there was, you know, number one, there was just real recognition from the very top of the house, from our CEO down, that we were in a position where we needed to sort of unify and become one company, one culture. And so that um, that recognition and the support all the way from the CEO down, I think, was number one and most most important because our CEO, Jim Murin, he actually went ballroom to ballroom, literally training with us on, on the brand and the culture and what he expected from leaders. And so getting that kind of support, not surprisingly from the top, is incredibly important. Second is, um, is really having partners throughout the business that understood the potential and the value, which is not always easy to do, but our chief human resources officer, as I said, Michelle Dutondo, she got it right away. I mean, her and I were inseparable for 18 months and she understood how this could impact all of the work she was doing around employee engagement and recruiting. Um, and so again, just getting that buy-in and socializing with folks, why there was a need. And remember this was, you know, 2015. And so it was only, you know, a few years back that we were still kind of recovering from the, the deep recession. And so people really understood that we needed to we needed to change and think about our business differently. So what companies or leaders have you been inspired by on this journey or do you feel like you've been creating it on your own? Um, I mean, there's there is so many amazing organizations doing great purpose, uh, purpose driven work. But um, and, you know, of course, I, like everybody else, um, like to read and, and learn. But at the end of the day, it is very customized to your business and the and um, the work that you do and the types of consumers you have and the leadership you, team you have. And so there isn't sort of a there isn't an easy playbook for it, I, I will say. Um, it really comes down to 
you know, really digging, digging deep into the soul of the DNA of, of your business. Um, and sometimes I think ours may be a little bit easier than others because we are not a digitally native business. We're a bricks and mortar business that really started our roots in, in entertainment. So um, that was a little bit easier for us, I think, than it is for some brands. Yeah, maybe easier, but you're still, what, 77,000 people last time I heard you speak or something a- like 80, that? 83,000 now. 83, yeah. 83 and sales of over 10 billion. 12, right? yeah. 12 yeah. billion. Yeah. So you are pulling it off in a reasonably complicated business model. Yes. Right? Um, it, it, I, absolutely. Uh, that is the one thing. It's funny when I, I was just uh, interviewing somebody when I recruit, I always say that to people. I say, listen, this is this is unlike any other business you'll be in. When you really think about it, we are the um, third largest entertainment company in the world next to AEG and Live Nation from a ticket sales perspective. We are the largest non-chain restaurant in the U.S. We do about two and a half billion in food and beverage. Um, and then you think about our hotel. We have the largest hotels in the world. Um, you think about our nightlife and our DJs, uh, our clubs, our spas. And so when you join MGM Resorts, you're joining a mashup of you know five or six really significant businesses. And so uh, it's, um, it's very diverse, very challenging, uh, but at the same time, very unified in our, in our mission to entertain the human race into um, and to really uh, deliver wow moments to our guests. And I also noticed that you're on a board, Dine Equity, with IHOP and with Applebee's. Uh, has that been helpful for you as a CMO at MGM Resorts? And how, how have you found that experience? Yes, that's a great question. Um, absolutely love it. It's a terrific board. I've, I've got some amazing uh, fellow board members that um, I actually uh, consider friends and ask them for advice. But for me personally and professionally, when I joined Applebee's, this was two and a half years ago, Applebee's was on a tailspin, uh, not in the right direction. And uh, there was questions actually whether Applebee's would survive as a brand. And so when I joined, we uh, went about hiring a new chief chief, uh, executive officer and really starting on a turnaround story for Applebee's and uh, invested a lot of time in figuring out what the right strategy would be to basically make sure that the brand uh, could survive. And two and a half years later now, it's one of the, you know, fastest growing uh, casual family dining restaurants again. We've had something, oh gosh, uh, you know, almost six quarters of consecutive growth outpacing all of our competitors. And so to be part of a turnaround story for a brand that most people considered dead two and a half years ago, that it just, you know, had missed the boat in terms of what um, what consumers were looking for has been really incredibly um, interesting work for me, meaningful work. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot actually through the process. A have lot you, of good discipline there. Have you found the concepts that you've been working at MGM Resorts, you know, on purpose and activating the people and, you know, kind of embedding the sense of purpose for the organization. Have those concepts been the same things that have been kind of working to bring Applebee's back? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a combination as usual, it's never usually Mm -hmm. one thing, but it certainly is about bringing in the right leader um, to lead the people, you know, bringing, you know, defining what a high performance culture looks like. 
Um, and then of course, looking at everything from who is our customer, what's the right product mix, what's the pricing strategy, um, and recognizing this is an interesting story about Applebee's. Um, you know, like most marketers, they had shifted most of their media spend to digital and online because that's what you're supposed to do as a marketer and that's where your people are. But in reality, what we realized with Applebee's um, and the type of product and the consumer it serves, TV still was a heavy, heavy driver of traffic for Applebee's. And so we brought in a new chief marketing officer who said, I want to do some testing here because I think we've over-rotated on digital at the cost of traditional TV. And my sense is that this audience still is very much driven by TV. And so we did, we kind of flipped it. And uh, TV is an amazing channel for Applebee's and in fact, for IHOP as well. And so it's about finding that right balance and not necessarily following the trend for your, for you know where you should be investing as a marketer, but really understanding where your consumers still are today. So Lillian, I want you to share with us one thing about Lillian that we would not find online. Oh my gosh. Well, um, there's a couple things. So in Canada, maternity leave is actually 12 months. And uh, what happens is people tie on their vacation. And so you're actually out of work for 14 months. And so the thought of that to me was, although it was exciting, it was also terrifying because I don't like to sit idle. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do? So I actually started a diaper bag business when I was on maternity leave. And at the same time, we had just renovated a, a, a house that we had bought in the city that was built in the 1930s, and it was featured in a magazine. So here I am on maternity leave. My daughter was maybe three or four months old at the time, and I started getting calls, people saying, would you help us renovate our house? Oh. Or, I'm looking for an interior designer. I'm looking for an interior decorator. And so I, on a complete whim, decided, yes, I would like to do that. And I remember I took my daughter in the little car seat, and I would meet with clients, and I would help them redesign their living rooms or kitchens. Um, everything. And I actually ended up having quite a nice little business. And by the time 14 months came around, I was like, geez, I wonder, should I become an interior designer full time? Is this is this my calling? <laughs> and I thought, no, I better stick to marketing. And there's probably some more job security here. But that was my little blip that you probably won't hear or see online. But I was a, for a brief moment, an interior designer. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, you might go back to yeah. it someday, right? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so are you a serial home renovator? Is that a hobby of yours? Um, I am not because I don't have the time, but I can tell you I would. So if I was uh, retired, I, I, I absolutely would love to do that. I just love, um, I love design and houses and um, potential and opportunities. For me, it's, you know, reaping the rewards of your vision. So it's kind of aligns. It's the creative side. Absolutely. So... Years from now, when you uh, start restart the diaper bag company or your interior design company, <laughs> yeah. what do you hope all the people who have worked for you say about you? You know, it's. I hope they think that I cared and I loved everybody that I worked with and I treated them with respect and I knew how important they were to me and to the work that we do. And it's funny because literally um, before this uh, podcast started, my assistant's partner, he happened to be here uh, for lunch and he came into my office, he shut the door and he put his arm around me. He said, can I tell you something? And I said, sure, what is it, Bob? And he said, I just wanted to thank you. And I said, for what? He said, for treating Susan with such respect. 
um, and being so kind and good to her. And this is obviously his his girlfriend and my uh, assistant. And I just I just went, oh, Bob, you have no idea how much that means to me because at the end of the day, and I think I probably got this from my father. That's that's all I really care about. I hope I make an impact on people's lives in a positive way. And I hope I make an impact on the company and the organization I work for and I help drive results. But at the end of the day, that's meaningless for me if people um, don't cherish the relationships they have with me and feel you know valued and, and, and respected and treated with uh, dignity. And so remembering me as being a good person and a people person is what is really all I care about. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. The the chairman and CEO of Procter & Gamble, when I joined, said to me as a young manager, he said, you know, people will forget the quarters and the fiscal years. They will, right. they will not forget the impact you had on their lives. So true. Yeah. 100% true. And, yeah. and, and you know, I'm not perfect, um, but I, I, I try damn hard every single day. So before we move into, that was a sweet story, by the way. Thank you for sharing it, <laughs> Lillian. Um, before we move into some industry questions to end the interview, uh, I did. we did notice on social media that you just took your daughter on a col- college visit. Yeah. So I want to, you know, I, I get a lot of questions from young people and I teach a lot of young people these days about how to blend their life, their personal and professional. And everyone struggles with it. There's no magic bullets. But, you know, you just had an experience with your daughter. I'm sure business was going on while you were visiting colleges. How do you manage a blended life? You seem from the outside to be doing it very well. Do you have any tips, secrets, thoughts? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I get comfortable with complete and utter chaos. Um, and so I, I'm kind of comfortable with chaos and going 90 miles an hour. In fact, I feel uncomfortable when I'm not going 100 miles an hour. I don't know how to operate in a situation where I don't have multiple things happening. And so it's interesting, the week that we did college tours uh, was a couple weeks before we were about to do a major reorganization at work. And so I was anxious about going on this trip, but knew it was so important that, you know, I, I had to go. And so uh, like everybody else, I was on my phone. I remember we were doing a college tour at Santa Clara, uh, University of Santa mm-hmm. Clara. And guess what? I was, you know, as my husband and daughter were touring, I was on a conference call. Uh, and then the next day I was supposed to go horseback riding and I got an urgent call and I ended up staying in the hotel room for most of the day. And so to your point, there is no perfect, uh, perfect situation, but you find a way to make it work. But I always tell people, but you have to feel comfortable with this idea of chaos and, um, and just not having, you know, your life completely planned out minute by minute. Um, and I think as soon as you recognize that it's not going to be this idyllic situation and it will be very um, disruptive your life, the more easier it becomes. So I've kind of, I've accepted it. You know, this is the way it is. Um, but I try and carve out, of course, time where, you know, this morning's a perfect example. 
Um, my daughter called, you know, texted me from school, though she's not supposed to be on her phone. And she texted me and she's like, Mom, you know, I need these. She's running for school president. Good for her. And she needed, yes. And she, you know, what's her, what's, her sl- what's her slogan? What's her slogan? Uh, well, she's it's it's actually kind of clever. She's got these posters. There's there's multiple slogans going on. We'll have to, that's another <laughs> whole story there. But she uh, she forgot these chocolates, and I had to get to the office. But of course, as every mother, I'm like, no, I really want to get these for her. So I called my assistant, and I said, you have to move this meeting. It happened to be a meeting she could move, so I can go to the CVS and get these chocolates and drop them off. And so it's like every working mom, you're just trying to find those moments that really matter and be present and and do it. Absolutely. Actually, your answer about being comfortable with chaos, I want to ask Kristen Lemcal at J.P. Morgan Chase the same question on another podcast. She had the exact same answer. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Love so it. you two yeah. should chat. I know you do, but you should chat yeah. about that very issue. You'll see. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's great. So you're working sort of right now on the ultimate lifestyle brand, right? MGM Resorts and all your, your sub-brands. What, what's... When does a brand become a lifestyle? Everyone wants their brand to become a lifestyle, no matter what category they are in. So when and how do you think a brand becomes a lifestyle? Because then it, be- it goes into a very rare group, you know, who sort of have amazing loyalty, amazing affinity. So what are some of your, what's some of your learning about that? Well, I, I think, you know, when we look at traditional lifestyle brands, um, when we talk about the Nikes or the Pelotons or the Apples, et cetera, I think those brands have been successful in becoming lifestyle brands because they sort of, at least in the fitness category, give you an opportunity to be a better version of you. So brands that make you feel better about who you are as a human being, um, I think become lifestyle brands. And also brands that um, brands that you feel like you can't live without. They have become so purposeful in your life that you feel like not only do they make you better as a human being, but they make your life easier as a human being and you feel like you can't live without them. Then I think you're kind of circling uh, the waters of being really a lifestyle brand. If you're a brand that people really don't feel like you're making their life better, easier in some way, shape or form, you really don't have a chance at becoming, you know, a quote unquote lifestyle brand. Mm-hmm. So is there a marketing campaign that you have not done that just has blown you away that you, that you that you just say wow that's picked me up that's amazing well you know it's there's so much great work out there uh right now and i'm just in awe of some of the work my fellow cmos are doing um i've really enjoyed watching the evolution and i guess i've been paying closer attention because it happens to be in my category but the work that airbnb does i'm really um I really sort of bowed down to them because I remember, you know, some of their work a few years ago where they talked about don't just go to Paris, you know, live in Paris or live like a local. And I just thought that was so smart because they tapped into that consumer um, insight around wanting to be, you know, people are eager for experiences. We're in the experience economy. They don't want to go to, you know, the restaurant where everybody should go. That's sort of a... um, a tourist trap. And so that whole campaign about live like a local, I thought was so smart. Um, and then of course they aligned it with their product offering and their hosting and all of that. And then what they did, I think it was last year, their campaign around um, everyone welcome. I think that's, I can't mm-hmm. remember. You the belong, exact. you belong. You belong. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you belong. I just thought was again, really smart 
um, really smart work because they were getting to the core of of, of humans and how they felt. Um, and you know, we're going in this country and in this world, we're going through a period of a, a divisive divisiveness. And this idea of trying to bring people together and communities together, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, um, saying, you know, you're welcome here, I thought was just right on point. So brands sometimes screw up, right? Or organizations screw up and they get on their heels and they have a, they, they lose trust, they stumble. Uh, and it's happening, obviously, with the social channels, uh, things get amplified very quickly. So what's some of your advice for a brand that loses trust? You know, if you were on a brand right now that suddenly, and certainly Facebook's in the middle of a lot of things, the financial industry back, you know, uh, at, at the yeah. recession, a lot of them, you know, had bad behavior and they're crawling out of that. So yeah. what's your counsel? You're someone who lives brand purpose. So I think it's interesting your take on that. How do you rebuild trust? Um, it's a great question. The first thing I will say is it doesn't happen overnight, as we know, and it takes time. Uh, you know, they say uh, time heals all wounds. It takes time. But number, th you know, number two is it's not dissimilar to, um, I guess, you know, personal relationships. If trust is broken with personal relationships, you know, what do you need to do to reinstate that trust? Number one is, you know, acknowledging and saying, look, as a brand, we did X, Y, Z. We did not realize the impact on our customers or partners, whatever the case may be. We take full um, acknowledgement and, and uh, responsibility for that. I think that's important. So brands have to come clean with what they did, why they did it, take you know responsibility for it, and then talk about what are they going to do from here on forward and talk the walk, really talk the walk. Because I find where brands slip is they may do the first three steps and they say they're going to do X, Y, Z in order to fix the situation, but then they don't deliver on that. And it's that consistent delivery of what you said you were going to do, when you said you were gonna do it and how you were gonna do it, um, I think is, is, is most important. And that repeated behavior will slowly um, get trust back. And frankly, there's going to be a percentage of consumers that will never trust you again. Um, but hopefully that frozen middle, as I like to call them, hopefully you can kind of push them uh, back, to, back to your side again with consistent, uh, reliable behavior. So brand purpose, you know, you're, one of, you're at the leaning edge of living brand purpose in your company and being a leader who lives it. What's the next chapter of brand purpose? You know, is it a fad? I hope not. But where does it go next? What's what's brand purpose 3.0 for you, for your company, or even for the industry? That's a great question. Um, that's a great question. Um, I still think, and I'm, you know, I haven't really thought about this, so this is going off the top of my head here. I still feel like a lot of brands talk about brand purpose, but when you still look at how they operate and the business they're in, you can still call them on it and say, no, you say that, but you're really not doing that. And so I think there's going to be sort of a reckoning where consumers are going to say, I heard you, you say that, but now I really want to see what you're doing about it. I guess the best example for me of a brand who really is, has a great defined brand purpose, but 
actually down to the core is living it, which I think are two different things. You know, saying that you have a brand purpose and really making all your business decisions based on that are two very different things. But I love what CVS did. When CVS said, you know, we're about, you know, making sure that people, um, we're, we're a health provider, for lack of better words. I'm not going to say it as eloquently as them, but we're here to make your lives healthier. When they stopped selling cigarettes, even though it was, I don't know how many millions of dollars of profit to them, when they stopped doing that, that to me is a brand that actually is not even, you know, is talking about brand purpose, but truly living brand purpose. I mean, that I think was a bold move and I applaud the CEO for that decision. And so I think when you say what's 2.0 or 3.0, it's really making sure that it's not just empty talk, that you're really looking at your business end to end, top to bottom, left to right, and really making sure that you're you're living it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's going to, you know, the future is about activation, living it, as you say, and also measuring it. That's right. And, yeah. and you've been big on that, but I think we're still in the early stages of really great measurement of purpose and link, linking it to, to results both within your organization and with your customers. I think we have room for more innovation there as we go forward. Absolutely, yes. So Lillian, I I, I sort of want to end this interview on a lightning round. And and so the first question I want to ask you is, what's a non-MGM brand right now that you cannot live without? Oh, I'm such a huge fan of Delta. I am, I love Delta. It is my, my airline and I could not live without them. I really, I have anxiety if I have to fly somebody outside of Delta. You know, it's funny. We were talking to Scott Galloway on a previous uh, podcast, and we talked a lot about Delta. And we're going to get the Delta CMO on the podcast. Oh, but I'm, al- good. I'm also, uh, I'm a high, I fly a lot of miles with Delta. I will make a connection on Delta to avoid another airline. Isn't that crazy? I mean, my assistant sometimes looks at me. She says, really, Lily? Um, but I will too. I, I absolutely, I mean, that's how much I adore Delta. Yeah, they've done such a, I mean, uh, you know, being Canadian, I didn't always fly Delta, but I just, their level of service um, and their commitment to the guest experience uh, is just phenomenal. Just, I think they've done a great job. Yeah, and you, you talk about your 82 or 83,000 people. It seems like everyone I meet at Delta, they care. And they're honest, yes. they're authentic, and if they make a mistake, they just, they're straightforward about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's all I want. Absolutely. I want transparency exactly. and honesty. Yeah, so, so I, can't, I can't live without my Delta. <laughs> so a book you're reading now that's interesting or a book that's had an impact on your life? Um, you know what? I don't, as I mentioned, I don't read a ton of books because I don't have the time span, but I did read um, just six months ago. I finished, which I really enjoyed, was Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's yeah, book. Yeah, I did. I read that really, as well. It's, that was really, you know, easy read, really enjoyable. Loved just hearing kind of the story from his his point of view. So I liked that. Uh, I liked that book a lot. What was your biggest lesson out of that one? Because I read that as well. I thought it was amazing. Well, you know, <laughs> actually, one of my biggest ahas was I didn't think he was so nice to his his, <laughs> his employees, um, which I, you know, was I, I was a little surprised by that actually when I, you know, when I sort of looked at the narrative and the storyline between him and some of the key employees in his early days, and I thought that was really interesting, um, and it's certainly not, you know, the the behaviors that I I would want to have, but um, you know, he's he was a different personality. But certainly perseverance yeah. and, uh, you know, that 
instinctual, you know, you know, you know what to do next and know what the consumer wants before they do was alive and well with Phil. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought perseverance and all, I didn't realize how long it took him to make any money. Exactly. So it was really, exactly. it was a long road and he really hung in there. He really did. Yeah, for sure. So Lillian, one last question, unless you want to keep talking about anything you want to keep talking about, but who, <laughs> no, who okay. would you like to listen to on this podcast? Who else should we get you know, to join you? I actually had to write their name down so I don't forget. Um, Mark Vialli. So I'm recently obsessed, um, and maybe your wife will know this, because my husband's like, oh, please, no, tell me you're not this when I'm on the iPad. But Real Real. Real Real, which is the, um, you know, they're going to be a unicorn here soon. They are luxury um, consignment. And it's basically the resale of, of luxury goods. And I've just become obsessed with Real Real. I buy on there. I sell on there. My husband just like cracks up. He can't believe what's happening. But it has, it's a fascinating story to me, um, that whole business and how it's existed for a long time, but how the CEO and founder was able to really turn this into, a, you know, virtually a billion dollar business, I think now, on uh, just, you know, people consigning and selling luxury goods. And so their CMO, I, I would just be, you know, really interested to hear about that that trajectory and that storyline and how they they built that that brand. Um, so I I think it's a super interesting business. We will see what we can do. <laughs> so what's your what's your luxury brand of choice? Well, I you know, I like them all. I like Gucci and I like Chanel and um, Gucci's got, you know, their designs have gotten a little crazy. I told them their footwear is, you know, a little much. I said, I miss a little bit more of their <laughs> traditional Gucci, more conservative footwear collection. Um, but, you know, the whole luxury goods business is another kind of interesting storyline. I'm sure there's some good CMOs to interview there as well. Yeah, we'd like to, we'd like to get LVMH. On, on the podcast, and I think we will. I think their stories will be incredible, and how they've ad- how they've adapted their model, and how they keep the these brands that are you know very old very relevant. Well, it's interesting because in Las Vegas, for both Chanel and Louis, I mean, we have some of the highest performing stores you know in the world. Um, so it's it's kind of fun sometimes just hanging out in front of Chanel and just seeing. You know, the customers that go in, they go out, and just how much money uh, can be spent per transaction in the luxury goods category is still, you know, you still s- scratch your head. Um, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. And, and the fact, what I love about luxury goods is it spans all, I mean, you stand in front of Louis Vuitton, or, you know, if I go to Chanel, just here at Bellagio, I mean, you have people who are, you know, Gen Z or millennials who are 21 buying a handbag, and then you have the 80-year-old grandmother buying the handbag. And so how, they, how they've been able to stretch really across um, different demographics is super fascinating as well. Oh, it's remarkable. And very, as you know, very few brands can do that. It's, it's Exactly. Remar- that's why they'd be really great in the podcast, and we'll, we'll work on that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just some homework for you. Sure. <laughs> so Lillian, it, this has been a joy and thank you for inspiring everyone on your purpose journey. You, you don't, I, I think you don't fully understand how many people you inspire. So thank you for uh, that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the time and having me on the podcast. That was my conversation with Lillian Tomovich. And I say, wow, to that conversation. I don't think there is a marketer in the world who is living her brand purpose as much as Lillian. 
There was just so much to learn from how she thinks about her brand and how it comes to life with employees and with customers. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.